Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from safeddean.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, safeddean.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeddean.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. There are a lot of things that people can say about Donald Trump and his campaign, uh, just like there were a lot of things that people could say and did say about his presidency. But one thing that I think can't be denied is that it is always unpredictable. You never quite know exactly what you're going to get from Donald Trump, either in terms of his ideas or how he expresses them or the ideas and issues on which he focuses at any given moment. Trump appeared Uh, last night at a campaign event in New Hampshire, the primary purpose of which was to unveil the new endorsement of Vivek Ramaswamy, who dropped out of the race and immediately endorsed 
President Trump. I don't think that came as a surprise. I think it was pretty clear that all along Vivek was closer politically and ideologically to Trump than he was to any other candidate. I think his rationale for running was that they, the establishment that is, are trying in a lot of different ways to remove Trump, to destroy Trump, to prevent him from running, to prevent him from becoming president, that they've been able to wound him in various ways, and that if you really want the Trump agenda implemented, this was Vivek's argument, I think, ultimately, that it would be better to turn to a younger, more energetic person who has not yet been wounded and harmed by all the efforts that have been launched against Donald Trump in the form of indictments and impeachments and all of those things. Now, obviously, voters did not find that persuasive. He ended up with 7% of the vote, which for a newcomer to the political scene, the fact that he made it longer than a lot of establishment politicians and made it to Iowa, got a respectable 7% of the vote, became a known quantity. I think a lot of Trump voters have said in polls to reflect this, that they like Vivek, but believe that Donald Trump was the person they wanted to vote for. Once Vivek dropped out, I think it was a natural uh, choice for him to support President Trump, given the ideas that he advocated. But one of the things that happened was that prior to going on stage with President Trump, Vivek talked to Trump and said, look, here are some things that I would like you to include in your campaign now that I'm, in a sense, going to be a surrogate or an endorser or a supporter. And Vivek went on Fox News and Jesse Waters asked him, what were those things you talked to him about? And Vivek said, I didn't ask for any kind of concessions about appointments or political favors. I really only cared about policy. And he named two policies in particular that he urged Trump to support, to make a centerpiece of his campaign. One was to promise, as Vivek promised, a day one pardon of Julian Assange, the person who, in my view, is the most pioneering and consequential journalist of our generation. I talked today in an interview, actually, about the reasons why, namely that it was Julian who envisioned that in the digital age, one of the great vulnerabilities of centers of power was that they were going to store all their secrets on thumb drives and uh, other sorts of uh, means of uh, maintaining digital data. And that would make it much easier for whistleblowers and insiders to leak and uh, divulge a lot of those secrets in mass. It used to be one of the great difficulties logistically of leakers when everything was on paper. How do you take paper out without being detected? How do you copy it? Daniel Ellsberg used to talk about the fact that one of the great challenges that he had when he leaked the Pentagon Papers was it was a multi-volume book of tens of thousands of class top secret documents and to get it to newspapers like the New York Times, he really had to go to a pharmacy with a big gigantic bag of dimes and copy one page after the next in Xerox machines of the kind they used to have in pharmacies. There was no way to transfer enormous amounts of data easily without being detected. And yet when Chelsea Manning decided to leak the Iraq and Afghanistan war logs and the diplomatic cables to WikiLeaks, hundreds of thousands of sensitive pages, she did it in about a half an hour by downloading it to a thumb drive and then just sending it to WikiLeaks. And WikiLeaks, Julian Assange in particular, envisioned that this was going to be the new means of journalism. Obviously, this is the 
type of journalism that I was able to do that enabled us to break the story with Edward Snowden, that he was able to get a gigantic archive out of the NSA to allow us to report on all the lies and secrets of the U.S. security state. When I did my reporting in Brazil, that was so consequential. Same thing. It was a gigantic archive of information stored digitally that a source was able to give me. And it was really Julian who first envisioned, first realized that this is the future of journalism in the digital age, especially the kind of journalism that is real journalism, journalism confronting establishment power and establishment authorities. And one of the innovations of WikiLeaks, the defining one, was that he created a Dropbox using his knowledge as a hacker in order to enable sources to send to WikiLeaks digital information without any fingerprints, to do so without being detected, to do so anonymously. And since then, there has been other kinds of programs developed by people like Aaron Schwartz in conjunction with the Freedom of the Press Foundation that is called Secure Drop that is now in every American newsroom that is designed to do the same thing, to encourage sources to give information digitally without getting caught. They all copied WikiLeaks, but that was Julian Assange's pioneering decision. But because Assange was an actual journalist, is an actual journalist, somebody who really confronted establishment power, he's not in a green room in CNN or in a makeup room in MSNBC. He is in prison. And so one of the arguments of Vivek is, if you really believe that the U.S. security state is fundamentally corrupted and abusing their power, you have to protect and reward people like Julian Assange and Edward Snowden who expose their crimes and not punish them. So that was one of the arguments that Vivek said he implored Trump to adopt as his centerpiece of his campaign. After Trump left office, he told Candace Owens that he came very close to pardoning Edward Snowden, not quite as close to him pardoning Julian Assange, and our knowledge of that situation, confirmed that. And we did a video about a year ago, which you can look at if you want, about what happened there, why Trump didn't end up pardoning either of those. But Vivek is uh, doing his best to get Trump to make that a promise for his campaign. But the other issue that Vivek mentioned was that he wants Trump to oppose the creation of a central bank for digital currency, which is a proposal that people inside the Biden administration and the Federal Reserve are pushing. Here is what Trump said after he spoke to Vivek about that issue. And tonight I'm also making another promise to protect Americans from government tyranny. As your president, I will never allow the creation of a central bank digital currency. Do you know about No, it's an interesting issue to raise in New Hampshire. New Hampshire tends to be a state that is opposed to government intrusion. It's a state that often values privacy. In fact, when I did the Snowden reporting, one of the very first major political figures who contacted me to express support for Edward Snowden was a former two-term Republican senator from New Hampshire named Gordon Humphrey, who wrote to me and said, look, as long as Snowden didn't leak information to the Russians, and I believe he didn't, I consider him a hero for having brought this information to the public. I asked whether or not I could tell Snowden that, whether or not I could publicize that, and he gave me the go-ahead. And it didn't surprise me that that came from New Hampshire. It has this kind of anti-government streak, so it's an interesting issue for Trump to invoke while campaigning in New Hampshire, and you saw the cheers there. But I think a lot of people are probably a little bit confused about what this issue is, what is a digital uh, a, a central bank for digital currency, what the implications are, why it's necessary to oppose it, 
who it is who's promoting it and why. We've obviously spent a lot of time on this show reporting on things that I find very disturbing, like the increasing power to exclude people from the financial system as a result of the belief that they are dissidents or have a bad ideology. We saw in Canada the ability of the government to freeze people's bank accounts who participated in these nonviolent protests against COVID mandates. We spent a lot of time on our, this show talking about how a centralized digital economic system is putting hands into states in the West to control even more and to punish even more the prospect for dissent. And so we decided it was an important issue. It is an important issue, and I'm not an expert in central banks or digital currency, so we decided to ask somebody to come on who is, who can help explain what Trump meant here and what this debate is all about. His name is Saifedina Moose, who was a professor of economics at the Lebanese American University from 2009 to 2019. He holds a PhD in sustainable development from Columbia University, a master's in development management from the London School of Economics, and a bachelor in mechanical engineering from the American University of Beirut. And he is also the author of the book, The Bitcoin Standard, the decentralized alternative to central banking and the fiat standard. We spoke to him just a few minutes before we came on the air. I found this discussion incredibly illuminating about what this issue is, why it's important, what the implications are, and I think you will find it illuminating as well. Professor Ramos, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us tonight. Thank you for having me, Glenn. I'm a huge fan. Thank you. That's nice of you to say. So, one of the reasons we're talking about this, in fact, the principal one, is because of comments made by former President Donald Trump at a campaign rally in New Hampshire on Wednesday, where he said, and I think it was kind of out of the blue, at least from the perspective of a lot of people, it's not something Trump discussed before, quote, tonight I am also making another promise to protect Americans from government tyranny. As your president, I will never allow the creation of a central bank digital currency. And he kind of made a comment immediately after, oh, have you heard about that? Do you know about that? Clearly, a lot of people hadn't. So before we delve into the specifics, if you could just explain the controversy around this issue, who was exactly, who was exactly proposing this central bank for digital currency and, and what are their arguments as for why we need that? So it's been proposed by various economists, uh, central banks, officials, people at the World Economic Forum. These kind of uh, busybodies are generally marketing this as a great idea. If you wanted to really think about what it means practically, I think the best way to put it is that it is everything that you hate about the current monetary and political system that we have, but done much more efficiently. Uh, that's, I think, what summarizes it. Effectively, it would allow central banks to have almost complete control of the economy. It would allow them to censor transactions, to confiscate money much more efficiently and much more effectively than they are able to do it right now. And it would allow them to control monetary policy and fiscal policy also with a lot more efficiency. So if you don't like those things, you're going to love uh, central bank digital currencies even more. <laughs> so one of the... Uh alternatives that has excited a lot of people who are very worried about state surveillance and the ability of the government to use control over our monetary system to enforce ideological orthodoxy and the like are things like Bitcoin and blockchain and other kinds of cryptocurrency. And for a long time, the argument was that if we introduce Bitcoin, if we allowed cryptocurrencies to flourish, it would enable people to engage in financial transactions anonymously. It would make it 
difficult, if not impossible, for the state to engage in the kind of digital surveillance that it loves to engage in, and it would essentially mean that we would be free from state monitoring in the way in which we spent our money. Is the creation of a central bank for digital currency relevant to the emergence of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies? In other words, would the creation of a, of a central bank preclude the ability of these other cryptocurrencies to emerge and flourish? I think it's related, but I, uh, I I don't think it is a competitor to Bitcoin. I think central bank digital currencies, people think of it as being something that would undermine Bitcoin. But I think it's going to be the best advertisement for Bitcoin. Because the value proposition of Bitcoin is not so much that it is digital, because your government's fiat currency is currently predominantly digital. Only a very tiny fraction of U.S. dollars is printed into paper money. The vast majority exists as digital money. So the digital part of Bitcoin is not the important part. The important thing about Bitcoin is that it is censorship resistant, meaning that anybody can transact and nobody can kick you off the network. Anyone can join the network. And that its monetary policy is predictable, algorithmic, and it's set in stone and nobody can change it. So Bitcoin precludes you, precludes governments being able to manage monetary policy and from being able to censor transactions. And so what central bank digital currencies do, the value prop that is being advertised by people like the uh, Bank for International Settlement is precisely that it allows governments more censorship, more control, and more uh, monetary policy supervision and more fiscal policy supervision. And that's exactly what Bitcoin can solve. And so I really think Bitcoin is the only alternative to this because if you don't have Bitcoin, you're going to end up at the mercy of your government. I mean, we're already seeing this, and, and this is why we can we, we, we shouldn't put too much stock in uh, Donald Trump's words because this kind of central bank digital currency, it's, it's, it's not necessarily a, a massive transformation that's going to happen overnight. Gradually, we're seeing how the banking system is being weaponized to crush political dissent. And of course, monetary policy has always been highly political. And these things are just going to continue. And it's not easy for a president to switch these things off, even if he wanted to. Yeah, I mean, that was really the question that I had. Once you separated from Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, which could continue to exist and to be uh, developed, even with this central bank of a digital currency, what really would this central bank that Trump is vowing to oppose, what really would it enable the government to do that it can't already do? As you said, it's almost like uh, archaic at this point to even think about the dollar as being a paper currency. Very few people spend money through paper. We spend it digitally with credit cards or bank transfers, everything relating to a central bank. Seems like the government has a huge amount of power right now to monitor what it is that we're doing. We've seen candidates like the Canadian government and others start to use exclusion from the financial system or freezing of bank accounts as punishment for political protests and activities that they disapprove of. So what really would the creation of this central digital bank enable the government to do that it can't already do more or less now? 
I think the simple answer to that is that it would take out the commercial banks from the equation and just make it far more efficient and faster for governments to exert their control. I think the best analogy or the best uh, closest thing that we've seen to central bank digital currencies is the Goss Bank of the Soviet Union, where there was one central bank for the whole country and everybody had an account with the central bank. And that, of course, was very conducive for a kind of uh, the kind of economic system that the Soviet Union had, whereas today, it's a little bit more complicated because you have to call individual banks and um, you need to you know, conduct this business through, through the commercial banks. So I think perhaps operationally, the most significant aspect of this is, might be that it, uh, it puts commercial banks out of business. This is one possibility because it makes their job obsolete because governments can just give you a central bank digital currency, an online wallet, and then that makes your bank obsolete. And now you're banking directly with the Fed. You know, interesting about this surveillance argument, uh, when back in 2013, we were able to do the reporting from Edward Snowden's archive that he furnished to us that demonstrated how widespread and pervasive, really ubiquitous state surveillance had become over the Internet. Most people were not only shocked by it, but also disturbed by it. There was a lot of public opinion in favor of that reporting, precisely because people understood why it's so threatening to allow the government to monitor everything we're saying, to monitor everything we're doing. I'm not going to say it didn't have some opposition. Certainly it did, especially in Washington. But a lot of people said, yeah, I think it is very disturbing. They could easily see why they wouldn't want the government being able to monitor the Internet. When it comes to currency, it seems like for whatever reason – People suddenly lose the understanding of why privacy and why anonymity matter. And of course, and I'm sure you've heard this many times, the argument tends to become, well, look, if we allow financial transactions to be conducted anonymously, without government detection, without government monitoring, it will empower all the bad people, the people who traffic in drugs, the people who trade child pornography, the people who are laundering money, the people who are doing all sorts of illegal things to be able to do it without detection. And therefore, we want the government being able to trace money because if they can't, it means a lot of people are going to get away with a lot of crimes and other bad things. What is your answer to that? The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now.
I think if you really uh, want to look at crime, you know, the big leagues of crime, they don't use things like Bitcoin. That's uh, not really very useful for them. They use things like JP Morgan and HSBC. That's where the real uh, criminal activity goes because these financial institutions with the current monetary system, wherein they have an enormous amount of monopoly power because the central bank has a monopoly. The central bank licensing of banks is a very limited process, which grants them a high degree of monopoly. And therefore, and also these banks are able to effectively create money. Every time a bank makes a loan, it is creating new money and bringing it into existence. So that's ideal. If you wanted to perform serious criminal activity, you'd want to have one of these international banks that has the ability to create and destroy money across borders. And that's what we see. I mean, these major banks have paid billions of dollars in fines, and they've been implicated in all kinds of uh, criminal activity. So it may be the drug dealer on the street who might be using uh, digital currencies, but the big cartels are... <laughs> using the big, uh, playing in the big leagues with the HSBC, basically, and, and these large banks. And I think, ultimately, it's the same argument with freedom of speech. Would you rather live in a society where one person gets to decide who gets to say what, or would you rather have the freedom of having everybody have the freedom to say what they want, and then people have the freedom to decide what they believe? And I, I of course, believe in the second option, and I think financially it's the same thing. I'd be, I'm willing to accept the idea that unsavory types of people might be able to do transactions that I can't stop because I know that the cost and the damage that would come from having a central authority being able to dictate who gets to do what kind of transaction is far more damaging and far more dangerous. And, um, you know, uh, look around over the last few months. I know you've been pretty outspoken about the genocide in Gaza. I'm Palestinian myself. I've been following this. I know thousands of people... I've heard about thousands of people in the U.S. and Germany and other Israeli puppet states who have had their livelihoods destroyed because they've spoken out about this. And I think people like you should be really concerned about this. People like your audience as well. I presume your audience is generally probably about one standard deviation higher in terms of intelligence, conscientiousness, and ability to notice what's going on in the world. And this is not going to be popular uh, moving forward. They're going to be mobilizing all kinds of censorship regimes. And with the way that it's going with financial assets, you don't really own anything unless you have Bitcoin. Everything that you have can be taken away from you pretty straightforwardly. So right now it's with banks, but with central bank digital currencies, it'll become even easier for them to confiscate all of those things. And even if you think you have hard assets, um, you know, stocks, bonds, all of those things are going to become easier and easier to confiscate. And we're already seeing precedents being set with the uh, confiscation of the reserves of Russia and confiscation of the uh, property of Russian individuals in the West. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is expanded further and further to punish political dissent. You know, it's, I'm, I'm glad you raised that example um, because I do think one of the inherent uh, recognitions that we have, maybe as American citizens or people who grew up in countries where they're inculcated with the idea that we're supposed to be a free society, is the fact that there is a cost to every freedom. If you allow free speech, you're going to allow people to express views that might actually be harmful, that might contaminate other people uh, in terms of their thinking, that might even lead them, induce them, encourage them to engage in violence. 
if you'll force the police to get a search warrant before entering homes, it's going to make it more difficult to catch some criminals. Some criminals will probably get away. These are generally costs we're willing to pay for the freedom because the alternative is, is so much worse. For whatever reason, when it comes to currency, people can't comprehend that same analysis that, oh, well, if we don't allow the government to monitor every financial transaction, bad people are going to get away with things that they shouldn't get away with. But in terms of the, the political dissent issue, um, we have seen a, a huge escalation in the amount of censorship and all kinds of other forms of punishment for dissent in particular in the war in Gaza, for uh, support for anyone who's critical of what the Israeli government is doing. And that has meant that a lot of people who previously for the last several years have been very concerned about the various multi-pronged efforts in the West to punish dissent, a lot of those people who support Israel are now starting to be a little bit more open to the possibility that perhaps these are good things. So let's just focus on that for a second. One of the things that I have found most alarming in terms of these developments of ways to control thought and punish dissent is the increasing power that is being consolidated to exclude people from the financial system. PayPal now partners with the Anti-Defamation League and asks them to identify ideological extremists. Anyone the ADL says that's an ideological extremist can lose their account on PayPal. We've actually heard lots of reports now of people increasingly not being able to open bank accounts or stock trading accounts or brokerage accounts because of whatever people discover about their online expression. How concerned are you about this trend where people are not just being excluded from one payment system here or one payment system here, but increasingly from the entire financial system because of how digital and concentrated it is due to their political views? On a personal level, I'm not very concerned. I have Bitcoin. Uh, so uh, that doesn't really concern me all that much. But I think from, an, uh, from, from a societal perspective, I can see where this is going. And of course, it isn't just on the issue of Palestine. It's also on the issue of uh, uh, pharmaceutical products. If you talk bad things, if you say bad things online about certain pharmaceutical products, you also get your banking um, canceled. And I think, um, I mean, it's 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 hilarious watching a lot of the many people who made their name as being freedom advocates over the last few years on the issue of health freedom turn into just your average raving lunatic when it comes to the issue of Palestine. But it's beyond just this hypocrisy in this one issue. I think there's a very important lesson here, which is that you don't get to choose how these things are going to be utilized. And so one day you might think, all right, well, this is good. It's taking out the bad guys. Well, one day you're going to be the bad guy. And with the way politics are, the way the politics are becoming more and more polarized in places like the U.S., I mean, it's 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 becoming regular part of the political uh, idea that we're going to go after our political enemies. We're seeing it right now between Democrats and Republicans, and so you can only imagine that this is going to exacerbate. And right now, maybe this is only being used against uh, health freedom advocates and Palestinian freedom advocates, but very soon you could see this um, become much more widely used against much uh, more common ideas in American society. Yeah, I mean, we saw it with the Canadian trucker protest, and we've even seen it with people who, not even with COVID, but were just uh, allegedly connected to right-wing views that were deemed too dangerous to allow people to participate. As the last question, let me ask you, uh, one of the promises of 
Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and blockchain and the like, and I actually interviewed a left-wing advocate of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency a couple of years ago, and one of the arguments he was making about why the left, which generally is hostile to these kinds of uh, non-state currencies, uh, one of the arguments he was making about why they should be more supportive is that it has the potential to undermine the ability of the United States to keep the dollar as the reserve currency, which is the thing that in turn allows the United States government to fund endless wars, to impose sanctions regimes on whatever governments they dislike. Um, and of course, at the same time, I remember, and one of the reasons why it was surprised me that Trump said what he said this week was because Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump about two years ago, within about a week or two of each other, both came out and said one of the gravest threats to national security of the United States is the possibility that the dollar could be overthrown as the reserve currency. What is that, whether you think it's good or bad, is that a real potential if we can facilitate the spread of Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency that it could actually undermine the ability to, of the United States to use the dollar and keep it as the reserve currency that feeds these sanctions and feeds these wars? Well, I mean, it's not a potential in the sense that you can use it today, and people do use it today, and it's something that the U.S. government cannot confiscate. There is no central authority behind Bitcoin that can just confiscate your Bitcoin. And I should be clear here that we need to make a very important distinction between Bitcoin and everything else in the digital currency, cryptocurrency space, because Bitcoin is the only thing that's truly decentralized and the only thing that truly doesn't have a kill switch, doesn't have anybody in charge. There's nobody for the U.S. government government to go and call and have them do things. So stable coins, for instance, things like Tether, even the people who run those things, they're very open about the fact that if the U.S. government calls them and tells them we need you to freeze this account, they can freeze that account. And I would argue that it's very difficult to make the case that any other digital currency other than Bitcoin can have that property of censorship resistance. I think when the rubber hits the road, it's not inconceivable. In fact, I'd say it's probable that it would be possible for governments to clamp down on these other digital currencies. Bitcoin, for a variety of uh, technical reasons, which uh, I, I describe in detail in my book, The Bitcoin Standard, Bitcoin is the only one that's truly decentralized and that truly can resist government censorship. And so in that sense, it already is an alternative. People all over the world use it to escape government controls, to escape hyperinflation. And I think realistically, it's only going to become more and more of a viable option over time. I think the important thing about it is that its economic value is essentially designed to go up over time. And so it rewards people who use it and they benefit from it. And that's that that's a superpower that it has compared to the U.S. dollar, which is designed to go down in value over time because that's how the U.S. government finances itself. It increases the supply, it devalues the holdings of everybody who holds dollars. And so holding dollars is a losing game. You're constantly bleeding value in order to finance the U.S. government and its war machines and its cronies all over the world. Whereas if you're holding Bitcoin, nobody can devalue your wealth. So I think in the longer time horizon, you can see where these two trends will head, which is that dollar holders are going to continue to bleed wealth and Bitcoin holders are going to continue to accumulate and accrue wealth. And that's, I think, going to make the Bitcoin economy a more viable alternative to the U.S. dollar system as time goes by. And of course, I mean, the, the, the real enemy that the U.S. dollar has is not so much Bitcoin as it is the central bank that is uh, using it and weaponizing it in every way. Uh, first of all, 
the monetary policy that is constantly increasing the supply and therefore devaluing it and making it worth less and less over time, but also the politicization, you know, the confiscation of reserves for Afghanistan and Russia, the use as a method for sanctions. It's forcing governments and people from all over the world to look for alternatives. And I think Bitcoin is the only working alternative. So I know I said last question as the preface to my prior question. This time I really mean it, and it's because you drew this distinction between Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. One of the main concerns for a long time about those trying to malign Bitcoin as a viable or positive alternative was that if you don't have any government control at all, you're going to ensure this kind of unregulated market, which in turn is going to lead to fraudsters and people who run scams. And they got the best possible gift they could have possibly be given with the collapse of FTX and Sam Bankman fried Now, obviously, there are a lot of people who have perpetrated scams well outside of Bitcoin. Bernie Madoff didn't use Bitcoin. The people who brought about the 2008 financial crisis didn't use Bitcoin. But what about the argument that if the government has no ability to see what's going on or to control it, you're going to get a lot of Sam Bankman frieds enriching themselves fraudulently at the expense of other people? I think the uh, the, the Sam Bankman-Fried collapse is a case in favor of Bitcoin because if you're a Bitcoiner, you hold your own Bitcoin keys. None of that stuff matters to you. All that happens is people who had their Bitcoins with Sam Bankman-Fried learned that that was a very stupid thing to do and everybody who didn't was unaffected by it. And because there is no central bank that can print Bitcoins to bail out Sam Bankman-Fried and his FTX and his clients, everybody who was involved learned a very valuable lesson. Now, if this was taking place in the fiat system, and it is taking place in the fiat system, it has always been taking place in the fiat system, what would have happened is that the central bank would have bailed him out, and it would have rewarded people who put their money there, and it would have rewarded him. So effectively, I think if you want to understand the fiat monetary system, it's what happens when the uh, people like Sam Bankman-Fried have access to the money printer, and then they rig that system to their favor. And that's essentially the ruling financial kleptocracy that you have today. It's just Sam Bankman-Frieds with a printer to fall back on. Whereas in Bitcoin, these people get wiped out, and the people who trust them with their money get wiped out. And the people who don't trust them with their money don't need to use them. We can use Bitcoin independently of these exchanges. You can send Bitcoin anywhere in the world without having to go through those exchanges. You can't do that with the dollar. That's the difference. With the dollar, you have to rely on the financial system. And with the dollar, the financial system has a magic printer that bails out the most corrupt people and rewards people for their corruption. And in fact, if you want to understand the history of modern banking in the US, the reason banking is an oligopoly is precisely because this money print has always been used to bail out those banks. And this has been the case since 1914, since the establishment of the Federal Reserve. So Bitcoin doesn't have that. Nobody can print it. And so therefore, instead of Sam Bankman-Fried establishing a one-century, two-century financial dynasty that rules over everybody, he just gets wiped out after a couple of years, and that's it. And that's the end of the story. So the freedom that Bitcoin allows you is, I believe, unparalleled and unmatched with what happens in the fiat system. Fraud's going to happen everywhere, but Bitcoin allows you the freedom to opt out of it and be unaffected by it. But you can't opt out of dollar inflation. You can't opt out of dollar bailouts for these financial institutions. You know, it's interesting. I think... Uh 
a lot of people, I would say most people understand that the financial system as it's constructed is deeply corrupted, but the complexity of these alternatives, I think, gives a lot of space to those who wanted to keep the status quo in place to kind of scare people into even considering alternatives. And I really appreciate your coming on and helping us kind of work through that complexity and understanding what these issues are. I don't think Trump had any idea what he was saying, but I think that he was listening to people who were encouraging him in the right direction. And uh, I think he did a good job illuminating uh, what that direction is. So I really appreciate the time. You took, you're taking the time. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me, Glenn. Yeah, good to see you.